welcome to series three of my podcast, Innovation, where we get to hear stories and experiences of some incredible women from diverse backgrounds and perspectives in science and technology. Our conversation gives us insights into some fascinating innovations of theirs, but we also get to relate to them because here on Innovation, I give women a platform to be heard and seen because this exact conversation is also in video format on YouTube. And honestly, every single episode that I record is always so inspiring and uplifting and even revealing because we hear about what these women have learned along their life's journeys, both personally and professionally. And we get really honest. This week, I talk to Dawn Bonfield, MBE, who is originally a materials engineer. My name's Dawn Bonfield. Uh, my journey has been materials engineer for the most part of my career. But now I work more partly at Aston University as a Royal Academy of Engineering visiting professor of inclusive engineering at Aston. And I work at King's College London as a Royal Society entrepreneur in residence. And what I do there is I look at um, entrepreneurship skills to for, for undergraduate engineers to address the sustainable development goals. But in addition to those two academic roles, I have a number of other things that I also do. So I've got a company of my own called Towards Vision, which looks at um, increasing the amount of diversity and inclusion in engineering. I, I guess the diversity part is smaller than the inclusion part. I now work on inclusive outcomes, so I can tell you more about that later. Um, and I also have a social enterprise, which is called Magnificent Women, which looks at the history of women in engineering. And I do lots of other things. I'm on lots of committees. So I'm proudly I'm a member of the World Federation of Engineering Organisations, WFEO, and I am deputy chair of the Women in Engineering Committee there. And that's a big global um, organisation uh, looking at engineering for sustainable development. So that's something that I really enjoy doing. I'm really proud of that side of things. But I'm also on the EPSRC committee, which is the Engineering and Physical Sciences um, Strategic Advisory Committee. Um, I do a lot for the Royal Academy of Engineering. I'm a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, newly, and also the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining, fellow of the Institution of Civil Engineers, and an honorary fellow of the Institution of Structural Engineers. And I'm a chartered engineer. So that's me in a nutshell. That's so incredible. How do you find the time to do other things? I mean, it's uh, that's a lot on your plate. Yeah, it is full. And it's a question of um, juggling things and spinning plates and hoping that things don't crash around me and, uh, yeah, nudging things forward bit by bit. So it's, it is pretty full. And there's always a massive list of things on my to-do list because every one of those has you know things that are progressing so it's yeah quite it's a lot of work but I I love doing it and the one of the really good things about working for yourself really you know the even the work I do at Aston and King's really is is my own work it's I'm not employed by either Aston or King's so I'm a almost like a consultant at both of those places so um yeah the great thing about being employed self-employed is that whatever you do you you do it for yourself so yeah that feels really good and it gives you a lot of flexibility really which I think is key to enjoying what you do 
So I have so many questions for you. Um, but let's start with your experience of engineering. Why did you decide to go into material engineering? Um, I, I knew that I knew all along when I was at school that I would do some kind of STEM career because I did, um, you know, the, the, the normal pathway through the lots of lots of us who come into engineering follow that maths, physics and chemistry pathway through. And I, I was in a math stream where I did um, three maths A-levels. So I did maths after the first year and then further math, um, pure maths and applied maths in the second year as A-levels. So I was in a small group of six students. So it was pretty inevitable that I was going to do some kind of STEM course. My dad is an engineer. So, so engineering was one of the options. So I was looking around at that point to see what I would most likely do. And at that time, this is probably the early 80s, there were quite a lot of summer schools. It was quite easy to get onto a summer school. And I did, I think, three summer schools on material science. I did one at UNIST in Manchester, one at Oxford University and one at Bath University. So I really had decided at that point that material science was the thing that I liked, you know, best because it's a great combination of the different sciences and maths. And I really liked Bath University. I lived in South Wales, so Bath University was just down the road, really. So and I loved Bath as the city. So, yeah, I went there and did material science. So it was a, it wasn't a difficult, you know. I worked. I have been um, past president, former chief executive of the Women's Engineering Society. So I know you know, from lots of other people's experiences that it's very difficult and there are lots of barriers for girls to get into engineering caused by all sorts of things, you know, not having supportive families or not having supportive teachers or not doing the right qualifications early on. But in my case, I didn't have any of those things. I had a pretty straightforward pathway. But that's not to say that that's, you know, that's probably more unusual than it is usual, I think, for the girls to go in so easily into an engineering career and as a woman I can see why uh, you're passionate about encouraging more women into engineering but um, why is it important for you to do so much work in diversifying engineering? Um, <clears throat> I think the, the work I do now around inclusive outputs for engineering, so making sure that the engineering we produce is inclusive of everybody, is accessible to everybody, and also doesn't build biases into the world around us. I think that is what drives me most to, to, to want to bring in a diversity of, of thought, really, into engineering, because you know, at the end of the day, engineering is not for everybody by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a question of people having equal opportunities to choose those subjects. And I think engineering in particular is one where we are literally building our futures right now. And if we don't have, if we don't give people opportunities to have their say in that, we will continue to get a world that is unequal, where things are built, where um, people haven't had access, haven't got access to them. They don't. They're not quite aligned to what their values or their their needs are. And I see a lot of this. And I do this work with the World Federation of Engineering Organisations, where we really look at 
women and the role that women have around the world. And women have very different roles around the world than they do necessarily in the UK. You know, I think we think that we're pretty even and equal in the UK. And I don't personally think we're that equal, but, you know, around the rest of the world, that is absolutely not the case. And women have very um, kind of social roles because of the culture of where they live, because of the religion that they um, of the country that they live in and just because of the social norms, if you like. And so their lives are very different. And we have to make sure that engineering technology that serves people serves them just as much as it serves everybody else. So I think I'm I'm really keen that we have people diverse, people with that ability to bring that identity into engineering with them so that they can represent different viewpoints really so that we so that what we create in the end is has as much chance as it can have of being um unbiased and equal for everyone without building in these um disadvantages for certain certain groups or promulgating disadvantage that's already in there that you know is carried over from a, a history of the world being built by one type of person so I think that's why I think it's it's not so much a question of just saying, OK, well, now we've got a certain percentage of women in engineering and, you know, our job is done. I think it's more a question of the inclusive outcomes of our engineering that drives my work to, you know, these days. Yeah, I mean, engineering, I qualified in 2004 and engineering had a very different landscape. Um, in terms of the types of people that were in the industry. Um, you've been in the industry a long time too. Um, how much has it changed? Like, are things getting better overall? <clears throat> it's a difficult question, really, isn't it? I think, um, I think they are getting better. I think women are more inclined I, I work on gender so I, I talk more about gender than any other types of diversity I guess but I think in terms of gender women are more inclined to be visible these days and I think you know I th certainly when I started in engineering I, I found a photograph not long ago and I looked at the photograph and I was the only woman in the engineering group at British Aerospace now I could not have told you that at the time of being there I, I hadn't noticed that that was the case and I certainly hadn't thought of it as being anything unusual but I think if I think that wouldn't happen today and I also think if it did happen today those women would be much more aware of the fact that there was a, a different you know difference in um who were who their peers were and much more likely to do something about it I think I didn't even realize it and didn't either do anything about it either so that awareness is much greater and I think that's from a cultural awareness that we have in the UK now around equality and you know we've had a lot of culture change around me too for example and and people seeing and COVID in fact um being a real indicator of inequality in society so we're much more aware of that we're much more likely to be active against that and so I think people are more you know certainly people women are more um likely to own their identity now and they don't mind standing out a little bit more than they perhaps used to feel like they had to fit in but I'm, I'm sensing that they 
that they're happy now to stand out a little bit more. I think the downside of that, though, in engineering is that I'm not sure engineering is ready for them to stand out. And I, I see umpteen examples of where women are standing out. They are kind of cut back down by the companies that they work for. And, you know, those companies don't like them getting that visibility. So that's um, something that I've seen recently. But I, But in terms of overall numbers... I don't think we're making the progress that we sometimes like to think we are. I think we like to think that we're doing better than we actually are just because there's more visibility of women. But 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 the actual numbers don't necessarily bear that out. Why do you think that's happening? Because I know that, you know, you have put so much of your time and effort into um, trying to change um the sort of gender disparity but um and and me too uh why do you think numbers are not changing mm, that's a really good question isn't it <clears throat> you know my my personal opinion is that the problems happen in school really i think um one of the biggest problems is the is around double and triple science i think that girls uh, it's quite a long explanation this but this is kind of I think what's at the crux of this but if you look at all of the data you you find that girls and boys younger you know girls and boys have um equal ability when it comes to science and maths but girls tend to be better at other things than they are at science and maths sometimes so where, whereas boys science maths is the thing that they're best at girls even though they're just as good can sometimes be better at other things so i think that that results in girls being kind of sent to the other things and boys filtered into the science and maths so when that happens you get this um kind of occupational stereotyping if you like or subject stereotyping where you just um because in a school you can imagine in a school where they've got every single subject to a level that they want to fill they're going to try and fill those subjects with the people that are likely to be most successful so i think we see a lot of girls being filtered into those subjects by the teachers who want them are kind of drawing them into those english arts humanities type subjects and less of the them being filtered into the others and i think before a level when it comes to um gcse i think we have double and triple science at gcse P students often don't choose those subjects when they're being put into their sets at gcse and so if you end up in a double science set we don't have currently a very good pathway from double science to science a level so all of those people, and it's like three quarters of young people are in that double science set. So they they almost can't find a pathway through from double science to start to a science A level and then on to engineering. And I think one of the solutions to that would be if we had the equivalent of a double science GCSE, but at A level, so a general science A level, you would have a pathway then through and you could add that general science A level onto another two A levels, like, you know, whatever. And then you have more chance of a pathway through into, into an engineering career. I, I, you know, I think we do a lot of work around inspiration 
which we do, but but the kind of structures that we have in place work against all of that work that we do because you know teachers are so keen on um, getting the right students into their courses, and you know one of the solutions to that is that we get Ofsted to help. So Ofsted obviously go into schools, and they can look at the gender. Um, disaggregation in terms of A-level students. So, you know, they could they could play a role in making sure that schools aren't bad at gender stereotyping into different subjects. They give equal opportunities. But yeah, we we're and this is the work of the Institute of Physics. Um, but yeah, I think that's really useful work, and we could do more by getting Ofsted involved if possible. Yeah, and add to that your previous comment about um, the engineering industry not necessarily embracing women who are finding their voice. Mm-hmm. It's like even if you made it through the educational system, once you get into industry, it's really difficult to thrive. And so it's there's no motivation to even go through the mm-hmm. educational process if at the end of it, it's going to be a struggle as well, which, by the way, yes. was exactly my experience you know really end up yeah you end up just finding another way to make a difference you know exactly that yeah yeah and there's so many examples of it that's the frightening thing you know it's not just one or two it's you know lots and lots of examples of that happening to people and Mm. yet you know the thing that one of the things that I think I'm on the Fairness, Inclusion and Respect Committee of the Institution of Civil Engineers, ICE. And one of the things we're really keen on there is to have a women's network at ICE. ICE is a really, you know, 200-year-old organisation, membership organisation, who have never had a women's network. Now, there are kind of a couple of things to say there, really. Often women in engineering don't want to be seen as a woman, you know, they want to fit in. So they don't want to distinguish themselves as a woman. They want to be seen as just an engineer and not, you know, be a woman engineer. I don't actually agree with that. And I think there's a lot of, I think we lose the diversity that we're bringing if that's the case. But so a lot of the members probably feel that anyway. But, you know, there's a lot of evidence around the fact that women's networks or groups, employer networks, support those people who are in the minority and, you know, we've been saying at ICE that this is something we want as members for a good while now. We just can't make progress on it. It just seems impossible for us to make that progress to get that women's network. And all of the onus is on us to prove that it's needed by the members. And it's just one of those things where, you know, these are barriers that are put in the way of, of helping women to come together and to support one another and not feel isolated in, in their workplaces. And certainly the civil engineering profession there's, or the construction industry, there's a lot of evidence to, to say that women need more help and support in mm. those industries where they often feel very isolated. Yeah, I mean, um, everything you're saying is kind of uh, just um, really reminding me of um the challenges I faced to be honest I feel very self-centered in saying this but um it really does kind of 
it really resonates with me because, um, you know, I got very highly qualified within engineering and I was in the industry for a while, but it just came such a struggle to be taken seriously um, because I was highly qualified and female and a person of um, ethnic minority. And because of that, I didn't want to do it, but I just felt like there's got to be more to my career than going into work every day, always feeling like I'm on a back foot. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I'm now in media and I'm doing what I love. Um, but so much of my work is about ensuring that women never feel the way I felt having gone through all of that education because you know my dad's also an engineer and I never once thought it was strange for me to go into engineering I mean the the big plan was for me to take over my father's company and I was all set to do that but as a result of my industry experience I just felt like if I take over my father's company it's going to fall apart because I'm female and I'm just, um, I mean, it wasn't at the time I'm female and therefore it's going to fall apart. It was, I'm never going to be taken seriously mm. and I don't want to, I don't want to be subjected to that because I've got too much to give. And as a result, the industry lost an engineer um, and I'm now, I would call myself someone who's in media, but mm. On the subject of women's networks in engineering, I didn't get any support from female engineers. I mean, you know, it, and and I think it's because I um, ended up not being a practicing engineer. And you know, I, I've written children's books and, you know, because I want to get, I, I want to be there to support people at a younger age. Um, in the same way that my dad supported me and kept the wonder and curiosity of engineering going all throughout my en education. Um, but it's like there is definitely a disconnect and this idea that women in engineering don't want to create a network mm. to support other women coming up through the ranks is, I think, one of the major roots of the problem. Mm. <laughs> yes, yeah, I think you might be right. You might be right there in a lot of respects because, you know, I, I come across it all the time and it, where you, there's always opposition to those network groups setting up and people wanting to be identified as a woman engineer. And I I think it's really sad because I've increasingly done work on this magnificent women um, social enterprise that I've got looking at women in the past. And one of the really exciting projects that I'm working on at the moment with a group of um, people, like-minded people, is this uh, centenary of the Electrical Association for Women. So in 1924, this organisation set up EAW. It was an offshoot of WES at the time, the Women's Engineering Society, and it was all around uh, women using electricity in the home. So allowing women to understand how to wire a plug and what fuses to use and, and how much electricity different appliances took. And it gave women um, that way of escaping the drudgery from their manual tasks and, and using washing machines, for example, instead of washing by hand. But it also gave them access to a career. So there were a lot of women who trained other women and <clears throat> 
who did like work on domestic science as well and brought kind of domesticity into the kind of realms of science, looking at ergonomics in the kitchen, looking at appliances that were needed. And this Electrical Association for Women were really uh, in, integral in that progress of women socially into the workforce and so the centenary is coming up and we're looking at a range of projects now to um to celebrate that but the reason i was saying it was that when that organization was really keen on saying this the this is women this is what women need and this is what we need engineering and technology to be doing to support women and i think we've lost that link somehow along the line we don't we're, we're kind of trying to move away too much from from representing who we are as women and I want us to reclaim that that identity because without our identity we we just might as well be one of you know the men in engineering because we're just fitting a mold that it, it ignores who we are as women so I yeah I really believe that we have a role to play as as women's networks in talking about what what we women want in the UK and around the world and one of the parts of this um, this centenary celebration that we've got is looking at women and appliances. So last week I was at an event called Appliances of the Future, and I felt like the consumer voice was missing in that whole day's event. So, you know, t technology companies make appliances like fridges and freezers and irons and washing machines and, you know, all of the appliances you can think of. And they they can put technology into them and they can keep on putting digitization and other bits of technology into them but i don't necessarily think that that's what consumers want from their appliances so you know certainly from my point of view i want something really simple to use that i can just switch on without having to engage too much with that appliance so what we're trying to do next year is get the voices of consumers and women are, you know, a big part of that. They're, they're really um, kind of decision makers when it comes to the home. Oftentimes they're the gatekeepers of cooking, often wastage, purchasing decisions around boiler technology and all sorts of, you know, they're really influential. And I think we can't, we shouldn't ignore the fact that women are the ones that are taking those decisions and, you know, their behaviours are really important to, to understand. So, yeah, that's a, kind of an exciting project that uh, will hopefully kind of reinstate some of those realisations that actually women have a say and they should be thinking to, to, to own their identity. When you were describing the network and sort of teaching women to wire a plug and fuses and I mean, it's it's so important, not only for all the reasons that you mentioned, but also because if we don't have this understanding, we'll always have to look to men mm. to, to to provide us with that information. Mm. And you've yeah. then got that subordination of like, you know, oh, I have to wait for my my husband to come home yeah. to sort of change the fuse or change the light bulb or whatever it is. And it's like, you mm. know, what stops us from mm. wiring that plug that won't yes. get because you're waiting for your husband to do it? You know, yeah. it's about female empowerment. And well, that's that why I'm so passionate about empowering girls and women into engineering, not because 
you know, not only because we need more diverse teams in engineering, but because women are absolutely more than capable of having this knowledge and partaking in our technological future. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And knowing that they can do that. And, you know, I'm guilty of it too, because I I think, you know, anyone of my age probably is from a, a, a time when um, families were quite traditional in who did what type of role. And I, you know, would look to my dad for putting shelves up and um, fixing the car. And I looked to my mum for, you know, the more home-based things, I guess. That was just the way it was and probably still is in lots of cases. But there is no reason. And I... And I, you know, you ha- we have to remind ourselves all the time that actually, no, I can put that shelf up myself. I don't have to wait for someone else to do that. So it is absolutely about empowering women to think, no, you can do that and you should be doing that. And now we have more reason than ever. You know, we have a massive, well, sustainable sustainability um, climate change problem in the world. And we have a huge energy crisis as well at the moment. So understanding and knowing more about the energy we use how we can reduce the energy we use how we can use appliances better and you know what what our behaviors need to be i think is really the the time that we need to start engaging and you know being being part of that conversation going forward yeah being proactive inspiring yeah inspiring our children as well to know that they can do this too so yeah, smashing yes. through those stereotypes. Yes. Um, I have a burning question, which uh, from ages ago of something you said uh, at the beginning of our conversation. Um, why were you not aware that you were the only woman in that photograph? <laughs> because <laughs> it's um, hard, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that. It just seems bizarre. But what I do remember is when one other woman started in the department. I worked at British Aerospace, so I was in the research centre, Salby Research Centre, and I was the only woman in our materials group. But I do remember when another woman started, Jen, her name was, and I, I remember feeling that that was unusual. <laughs> there was a woman starting, which is odd, really, to think that that that's what triggered me to think about it rather than me thinking this is me from my perspective when I saw it from her perspective I noticed it but I hadn't just I think I just think maybe like I'd spent my two years of A-levels with this small group of six students doing the double maths thing I mean we were in a comprehensive school in South Wales it wasn't like some elite school but there was just happened to be a really strong maths teacher and this really small maths group that wanted to do double maths so um yeah I was in a group and I was the only girl in that group and maybe it just seemed like the norm I don't know and I just norm I probably just normalized it to be the, the way it was I suppose I mean I'd love to deep dive into that because um I can understand if you're the only one, you know, how you would have just got on with it. Um, But do you think that you had to adapt to um, thrive in a male dominated environment? And if you did have to uh, adapt in some way, like what were the ways? I don't think I did. 
I don't think I did have to adapt. I think I just naturally fit in. And I think they were a group of people who, I mean, it was a research organisation. It wasn't like your engineering shop floor, which might have made you feel like you stood out more. It was a research environment. I had a lab. I had my own composites processing lab. Um, I don't think I, I didn't feel like I stood out at all or needed to adapt at all to fit in yeah that's so fascinating because um i've spoken to quite a number of women on this podcast that has been going for four years now and um you know all kinds of age ranges ethnicities um backgrounds and and um a common theme has been that sort of self-conscious um i better not put my hand up even though i know the answer mm. Mm-hmm. In case I'm getting it wrong and how am I going to cope with the embarrassment of that amongst my peers who are nothing like me? You know, that mm-hmm. kind of um, Awareness. mentality um, that exists between boys and girls doesn't sound like you yeah. have that. Um, no. But do you think that's why you have been so successful in engineering? Because you didn't have that kind of... Uh, I'm different kind of attitude. No, I don't think so. And I don't see myself as being successful in engineering. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think if I, I've, I've kind of found a way, I, f- I feel like I've found a way to, to move on in engineering. And, you know, when I, when I came out of engineering proper, when I had children, I couldn't get back in. I did go back into British Aerospace, but I was, I was just because I was part time when I went back after I've got three children. When I went back after the third child, I was in some because my career was fine. I enjoyed I was enjoying my career. But when I went back, I just kind of dropped like a stone in the organization. And I was just in some non in engineering role. I was just doing nothing, basically. I've spoken about this quite a bit and written about it as well. I I kept having dreams and I still now have dreams which is the sad part that I was hiding from my work and I wasn't getting paid for I was getting paid but I wasn't actually doing any work and I was had these kind of guilt feelings about not not earning the pay that I was getting because I wasn't actually really doing anything that I found to be worthwhile so anyway at that point I came out of engineering and I did not think that I would go back into engineering. I became a childminder. Um, <clears throat> yeah, got a bit, you know, my own business and became a childminder and did some work for the National Childbirth Trust and just felt like I was on a different career path then. And it was my dad, actually, who said, no, you know, don't let your chartership drop. Carry on. He carried on paying my chartership fees. And I thought, you know what, I'm never going to go back to that. So I probably don't need this anymore. But luckily, I kept it. And then when I when I wanted to, I realised that I was kind of missing engineering. So I tried to do some volunteer work to try and get back into engineering. So I got back into engineering, but in a different type of role. So it was a bit more like you say, it was I went into conference producing for the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. So I produced these materials conferences, which was great because I, you know, it was technical and it was organisational and it suited my working patterns. And then since then, I've kind of been on the edge of engineering. So I, I do, I, you know, I feel like an engineer. Of course I do. But 
I feel like my proper engineering career, I feel like I've had to really struggle to, to be still part of the engineering family, if you like, since then I feel, yeah. And I have, I have struggled. I have carried on doing that because, you know, it's, I guess it's where I want to be. It's what it is, the profession I want to work in. So yeah. I wonder what I was what answering there. <laughs> I wonder what it must be like for engineering dads to see their engineering. We have that added pressure to be there for a family, you know. Um, the role of becoming a mum is gigantic. And juggling that with an engineering career that's male-dominated, like, I just, you know, I can understand why your career journey um, became what it is. I can completely understand that, except for I don't have children myself because, honestly, I, I, I didn't know when to fit it in. And, 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 and um, so... Uh, what advice would you give for women now who would love to be in engineering, but also would love to be mums? Like, are there opportunities now for women that want it all? Mm, I think, I still think we've got quite a way to go in terms of um, careers where you can do both really like part-time careers and job shares I don't really see that many of them and I I do look for them myself because I'd quite like to do that sort of thing I'd like job share I could kind of senior position that was job share but you don't see those advertised very much I mean you know I've I I love I've loved having my family I've loved taking the time out with my family and I've been privileged to be able to do that because my husband works he's got a good job so you know I I haven't had to rush back into a career where I've had to be the you know um the money earner kind of thing so I've had the privilege of doing what I've done and looking after my family which I think is great and we should be able to have that privilege of doing that and then when we want to also be able to come back into the engineering sector easily and find jobs that suit us in terms of suiting our lifestyle that we want in order to do the, both of those things because as you say you know you the engineering sector lost you as an engineer lost me as a qualified engineer you know effectively as somebody who works on an engineering project and it's the same thing with lots of women i think the stats are something like 78% of women registered women professionally registered women leave the professional register under the age of i can't remember what the age is now but it's 50 something so we have a really small percentage of women who become professionally registered and three quarters of them are leaving the profession by you know the age of 50 or whatever for whatever reason they have got fed up with the engineering sector or they've got parents that they've got to look after or their children are teenagers and they've got to take time out for them or whatever it is we're losing them and I've done quite a lot of work in trying to get companies to understand that when women take time out for families they're actually really upskilling themselves you know because doing that work as a as a parent is is massive for your um 
capability, your future capability. You know, you have so many more skills and companies should be recognizing that and bringing the women back in so that they can make use of those skills that they've now developed as a, you know, as a parent, if you like, in addition to what they have And they have so much more determination. Yes. They really want to go back to work. They do, and they're super organized when they're in the workplace. If they're working part-time, they do a massive amount of work. They're very loyal. They have great um, attractive qualities that we just are not recognizing. We're kind of putting them back in lower down and saying, oh, well, of course, you've had time out, and so you're not going to be as well qualified as someone who's just carried on doing the same old, same old. We've got it all the wrong way around. We need to reframe that whole argument. Um, So, yeah, so that's part of it really to make sure we have a mechanism for bringing people back in and rewarding them for for taking time out so that people feel like they're not slipping back in their career by taking that break so that they can almost monetize those skills that they develop while they're um, on their career break and the other really big part of that is that now they have a massive link into the community if they've got children if they've got families much more than you know those big companies have when they try to do the outreach activities that they spend so much money on all of a sudden now you've got someone who has is the like stepping stone to classes full of kids that they can you know use to then um be the ambassador for engineering in that uh, school environment so yeah i i think we haven't got that right at the moment so there's more we can do there definitely Mm, so much more work to do Um, you know this idea of returning mothers like returners returning who have highly qualified in something gone off to um have a family or do something else that's um off the engineering track Mm. um, skilled themselves in many different ways we should be really grabbing hold of those women yes. bringing them back and and celebrating what they've yes. done because they've yeah. just they've got so much to contribute and I, even just the mentality is not right the idea of putting them lower down um as though uh i mean i have no idea what it must do to a woman's confidence exactly yeah that's that's exactly right and they and knowing that that's going to happen almost makes them lose the confidence you know already women say they struggle with going back into the workplace because they've kind of lost that confidence of getting dressed up for work knowing what it's like to speak in a professional environment you know already women are having those kind of doubts about whether they can do that so we need to support them in being able to do that and and tell them that no actually do you know what you we really valuable value what you've got to say when you come back in and you know we'll help you get over those initial you know nerves that you might have in going back in but yeah absolutely changing that conversation about returning from maternity leave is vital I think I feel like we've been so honest and transparent today (laughs) um it's the only way to be isn't it and it's and it definitely and and it's not um, the rosiest of pictures in engineering, mm-hmm. um, but you and I share a common ambition, which is to encourage women 
into STEM and in our case, engineering. And um, despite a little bit of gloom in the engineering industry, um, can we sort of end our conversation by um, bringing out the, the, the reasons why it is great for women to go into engineering? Because I'm, I feel like there's so much work to do, but, you know, I, I really do actively encourage women to go into, into engineering because uh, I think their perspectives are so deeply needed in the industry. Why do you think it's important? For exactly that reason, I think it's all about, you know, somewhere behind me, probably, you know, in front of me, I have the sustainable development goals. I've got the sustainable development goals all around me. We have enormous challenges to solve at the moment, global challenges represented by the sustainable development goals. We need we need everybody to be thinking about how they can solve those challenges. So whatever skill you have, you we, ha we all have a role in um, playing our part for that sustainable future. Now, in engineering, we happen to be using technology and engineering to literally build this future that we're going to need. We cannot let other people do that for us. If we want to have our say, we have to be in the mix and be able to contribute. Now, great if you can do that as an engineer. You know, we are engineers and we're keen that we give those opportunities to young people to, to become engineers. So if that's the, you know, if that's your skill set and that's your interest, then become an engineer and, and use those skills to, to address those challenges. But even if you don't want to be an engineer, you know, it's not, it's, it's a kind of multidisciplinary task that we've got ahead of us. So we all need to be working together. So whichever discipline you do go into, you know, we have the challenge to work together to solve those future um, problems or opportunities that we have. So engineering is a great way of doing that because whatever field you're in, technology is part of that future for that field. So, you know, we need people who can embed that technology and make it work for everybody. But engineering of every discipline that you can think of is needed for the future. So, yeah, if if young people have got half a mind to and the skills that they that they need and it's not all about um whether you can solve you know you do not have to be a genius in in physics or maths or any other subject i mean i talking earlier about make myself doing three maths a levels the amount of maths i ever used after that in engineering was minuscule probably so you need good organisational skills. You need to be able to think broadly. Nowadays, it's all about systems thinking and be able to, being able in engineering to think from different perspectives and think about the whole. We have great technology these days that does the calculations for us and, and can design things for us. You know, it's not a question of the individual needing necessarily those really um, deep skills in one area. We need systems thinking where we can think about, you know, the world as it works, communities that we live in, what people need. So, yeah, I would say absolutely a career in engineering is that's in order to address those bigger challenges is, is you know, what I think young people need to be aware of. And it's a really good career. And, you know, the, the more we get, the more 
people we get in from those with those diverse perspectives, the more the sector will change. I I couldn't say that right now it's as good as it could get, but it's certainly a lot better than it was last year and the year before and the year before that and when you started and when I started. So it's getting better all the time. and, And it's only by getting people into those positions and then them using their voice and being inspired and empowered to use their voice that things will change and don't wait you know if you're in engineering don't wait for things to change change them now you know we have a voice we have we have that power we we need to use our voice and we need to work for companies that that um have the same values as we have and if they're not if they're not in the company that you work for now then either change change their values you know in influence the company or change the organization work for someone else if you can because you know companies will not survive any longer that don't have the values that we want to see as women working in engineering well dawn you're doing so much for diversity and inclusion um, and women in engineering thank you for all of the amazing things that you're doing um, I think, you know, we can both safely say that, um, well, I'll say for myself that I am so, so glad that I studied engineering. Mm-hmm. I can see that an engineering background um, for both of us has really given us such amazing skills that we've taken through all mm-hmm. the twists and turns of our career. I mean, I wouldn't mm-hmm. have to study anything else. I can honestly say that my 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 ability to organize my logic and all of that was because of my engineering training. And so even if you don't end up in the thick of engineering, um, those skills that you pick up through studying will last you a lifetime. Um, And uh, I think, uh, you know, it's clear that A career in engineering um, for women is something that is much needed in order to broaden the perspectives of the industry. And, um, you know, good luck with everything more that you're doing for um, women in engineering. And thank you so much for sharing your story because um, it's such a, a... a wide range of experiences and so inspiring to hear that you've fitted so much into your career and that you're helping other women do the same so thank you well it's been great to speak to you actually and we've had a really interesting conversation so good luck with the rest of your work because you do amazing things and you are as somebody who's giving the, the profession the visibility on the big stage that it actually needs so good luck to you Thanks for listening and please do subscribe to this podcast and maybe even rate and review it if you can. The more ratings and reviews and the more interest from those trusty algorithms, which could help to increase the reach of this show. And you can watch the video recording of this conversation on YouTube on my new series called Esteemed. It's all about self-discovery, self-evolution and inclusivity on innovation. Let's all strive to be in the best versions of ourselves and celebrate others being themselves too. As always, be kind and loving and I wish you all a great week.